Welcome to the Words of Belonging podcast series produced by Belong. I am your host Yoshita Shivastav. I am the literature collective associate at Belong. In this series, we speak with authors and writers and explore their writings in depth, covering themes of diversity and inclusion. Listen in to conversations that focus on how gender, sexuality, caste, ability, ethnicity, religion, and other kinds of identity-based bias show up in our myths in Indian language literature, even discussions around modern internet. understand the role of translations and the importance of debates about contemporary feminist and lgbtq plus movements and many more such topics hope these conversations help you see the world in a new light hello and welcome today we are in conversation with sindhu rajsekar sindhu is the author of a novel kaleidoscopic reflection which was nominated for the crossword book award and a collection of short stories so i let it be her essays poetry and fiction have appeared in international publications and anthologies today we are talking to sindhu about her latest book smashing the patriarchy a guide for the 21st century indian women from beauty body politics and sexuality to caste power and the paradox of choice the book explores a wide range of women's issues and draws important connections between these so thank you so much for being part of this sindhu and for talking to me today i would like to start this conversation by asking you about the choice of the title of the book smashing the patriarchy and as i mentioned i really like the accessible as well as explanatory tone of the book like i understand the different themes and the sections are so well i think structured so how did you come up with it what was the thought behind it? thank you so much for having me here yashita lovely talking to you so the title of the book so that's something that came up like right after i finished writing the book because i thought of many different titles and while i was talking to all the women that i interviewed for the book right i spoke to women who called themselves feminists and spoke to women who did not essentially identify as feminists but i found that all women acknowledged that the patriarchy exists and that they were discriminated you know against because of the patriarchy so i wanted to avoid the word feminism in the title because i knew women in the book not all of them identify as feminists first of all so smashing the patriarchy everybody seemed to agree with so i went with that title in the end that was the reasoning behind the title and about the structure of the book this was again you know i worked very closely with my editor pujita krishnan at alf book company while i constructed the book so they would constantly give me feedback as i wrote every chapter and so it sort of grew over four years you know this is something that, that i wrote over four years so it was a lot of ideas would change and my own perspective would change after i spoke to somebody and that was the most fascinating thing for me because what i thought everything was at the beginning of writing this book is not the same as and and i hope everybody had that journey while reading the book because you know what what is our one person's truth is not another person's truth and that's the whole point of the book anyway so yeah i hope that answered your question in the thank you yeah i think i agree with your choice i get like how you talk about how feminism or like feminist is a word that not everybody recognizes with but of course patriarchy and we are all kind of you know under the same kind of social structure we are still products of it or we are still like struggling through the power that the structure holds so i guess yeah i feel like the title does great like adds value to the book and i really like a kind of also <laughs> as i said like as, as i read the book it was also like a lot of rage comes from like reading about these struggles right so i also felt like having such a title which like smash 
smashing the patriarchy also fits very well with that kind of rage that one feels with the patriarchy. That was the thing, writing this book, I was so angry for like so many years. It was a thing that everybody around me told me that, you know, I was just, it's so hard to listen to all of this and to write this and to sort of, obviously you're going through this in your head as well. And everything you see, you can, you can see it everywhere. The patriarchy is everywhere. So, and I would pull it up wherever it came up and, you know, it was, yeah, and I still do. But while writing it, especially it was, yeah, it was so inside me, the rage. Yeah, and I I really like a quote from the book, which is to be free to go beyond gender binaries, we must dissociate the female body from femininity first. So as you were talking about, even though how patriarchy is everywhere, how it affects everyone. So I wanted to hear more about like how we should dissociate the female body from femininity. Yeah. So in fact, in the same paragraph, I go on to say later that this joining, this is the idea that is, you know, we all speak about, but this joining femininity and womanhood is a Sisyphean endeavor because I say that it is not, we can't do it. And the point I'm trying to make is, is not to say that hence womanhood means femininity. It's to say that whatever our gender identity, man, woman, non-binary, whoever we are, we all have femininities and masculinities within us. Right now, the problem is that the patriarchy wants women to be a particular type of feminine, which is passive, subservient, dependent, beautiful, according to what patriarchy thinks is beauty and sexual. It does not appreciate fierce femininity in women, and it obviously does not appreciate femininity in men at all. It wants men to be hyper masculine. And the thing about this is that there is a scholar called Catherine McKinnon who talks about how we all have queer potential because we're all failing to be the perfect version of what a patriarchy expects our gender to be anyway, right? So to say that any of us has to be any one thing is just crazy, but that's exactly what the patriarchy wants. And the other problem is that although it wants women to be feminine and whatever, it obviously others the feminine in a way that to be feminine is to be weak, right? And that's true for women, men, or people of any gender. So to be equal and worthy in a patriarchal world, we have to be masculine, like, you know, that's for men. But if women are masculine, obviously, then that's a problem anyway, because then that's not allowed in society to be uh, masculine as a woman. And they would call you all sorts of names and, you know, basically weaponize that against you. So all these are the problems that we face in a patriarchal society, right? So my whole argument is that to make us all equal, we need to first of all think of femininity as equal to masculinity in our own heads and start appreciating the aspects of femininity that are good for the world, right? Feminine values like intuition, empathy, you know, sensuality, emotion, all of these things is valuable for all of us across all genders. And to constantly sort of collaborative, I think these are all values that comes from being feminine, right? And these are not valued in the corporate workplace, not even in the academic workplace. I was at a feminist forum yesterday at Glasgow, and we were talking about how in the academia, women as in women professors do a lot of care work for their students. But when promotions come in, men get the promotions because they do the stuff to tick the boxes of, but this care work doesn't even feature anywhere. But it always falls on the, you know, it's like unpaid labor that women do, but nobody gives any appreciation for that. So this is the sort of stuff that goes on in all industries, right? And at home too. So women wear the emotional labor, they do the physical labor too at home, all of that happens, but it's not valued because it's not paid for. It's not gainful work. So this is all because we think femininity is not equal to masculinity. Now it all stems from that particular coding. And for me, that is the problem. So that is why I speak a lot about femininity in the book. It's funny because in my own life, 
for most of my life been more masculine, you know, and I've consciously been masculine because I was scared of sort of being feminine and, you know, to conform or to become that person, right? So I've been that. But while I was writing this book is when I realized that, in fact, it was revolution for me, that femininity has actually been the moments in my life, which I really value a lot, were probably the moments that came from my feminine side, you know, in a sense. So I think there is that big problem because also in previous waves of uh, feminism in India and globally, women had to become masculine subjects to sort of fight against the patriarchy. But I think in our generation, especially with millennials and Gen Z and going forth, we've really queered that. We've really sort of changed what that means. And now a lot of women and men and non-binary folks, we all sort of embrace our feminine insights. And that's, I think, a good thing. And that's what we need to do. That's a great point. While reading a book as well, I think this was something that has also been kind of a discussion for a while now, especially I feel like when you're young, like the first things about feminism that you learn about, oh, we're not like other girls, we don't like chiclet or stuff like that. So everything which is feminine is kind of treated as like lesser or like as the weaker choice or the choice that should not be, you know, if you want to be more powerful, you should be more like men. So I totally agree. I think as you grow up, as the world is changing and I can see around me as well, I agree people are kind of embracing it and kind of finding what is powerful in femininity as well and across the genders. That's pretty beautiful. I hope that change goes on. As you talked about in the beginning, the different kind of the structure of your book, the kind of themes that you delve into. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like specific thematic questions around those subchapters. The first one you delve into, which is called on beauty, to talk about the kind of power that is related to beauty, especially in India, the definition of beauty is based largely on the majoritarian mass culture idea of what is considered the ideal and is also like very related to a woman's worth because like you have the marriage system and everything is also inherently a part of the woman's worth in our context. Can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between beauty and power? This is actually a fascinating subject for me. I really read a lot about it, think a lot about it and write a lot about it as well. Because I think, yeah, you're right. The patriarchy rewards women who fall within its idea of, you know, what is considered beautiful, right? And that is anyway a very misogynistic, racist, classist, casteist idea to start with. And that has been sort of perpetuated to ancient, medieval, modern, and now in contemporary India as well. So I speak about how that sort of prototype changes, but only very little. It doesn't really very radically change much anyway. But the funny thing about it, what really interests me about the patriarchy is that women who are considered beautiful according to the norms of the patriarchy are considered beautiful and amazing only as long as they cater to male pleasure, right? So when they start using that beauty, even the, the beauty that is the patriarchy considered as beauty. So even those women, when they use their beauty to empower themselves or for their own pleasure or start transgressing those norms, then they are vilified. Then they're seductresses, vamps, bitches, what have you, right? And that's something that's been going on for centuries. And even in our epics, if you see any woman who is like very beautiful, according to their own norms, but she's villainous because she's like, you know, trying to take the power, trying to influence people, all those women are vilified. And obviously the dark women, the demonesses, all those women are vilified anyway, because, you know, that's how the patriarchy works. So it's just that the whole culture is misogynistic. 
right? And in this sort of a thing, I'm so glad to say that right now in India, all sorts of women, whether it be the beauty uh, sort of uh, the body positive movement or the body neutral movement, whichever that they prefer to choose, the fact that some women, whatever sort of bodies they have, plus size bodies, queer bodies, darker bodies, whatever it is that they embrace their own bodies and they find beauty in it and they stand out and say that I am beautiful. I don't give, I don't care what you say or think. This is who I am and I'm accepting myself the way I am and the women who are body neutral right like who say I don't even care about this concept like I'm beyond this concept I'm more about the transcendent being or something else like I don't care about this so all of these are amazing things that are happening in our society and that's the thing for me when I was writing this book I did not want to write about only the problems I wanted to write about how women are subverting these things and it's happening on such a large scale in India you know and this is also true of queer women who dress it to show their queerness and that's a very bold thing to do right and that's the sort of research I do right now anyway about queer South Asian past and I find that in the past it was actually okay for women and men to sort of dress in ways in a pre-colonial India I think colonial times really changed that it became very clear you know this is how you're a man you're a woman this is how you dress that's how you dress you know but anyway I think we're all sort of changing that that I'm really positive about that change in India and around the world and we should all fight for that yeah so beauty is I think it, it needs to change and it's happening though yeah I totally agree it's very interesting to see how so like a lot of I'm also queer I have like a lot of queer friends <laughs> so it's really interesting to see how beauty and aesthetics I think in the current especially the digital age and everything I think aesthetics plays a really big part of how we define our queerness like basically take pride in our queerness so I think like that's a it's a great point and I hope to read your future research as well that sounds pretty interesting yeah yeah that I will I will tell you about next time we speak And yeah, it's really amazing because the research is about late 19th century India, just when, and also a little bit earlier, when the British brought in Section 377. And in that mm-hmm. colonial moment, like how things changed, right? And how were, obviously queer people existed then. They didn't use the language we use now, but what was it like to live then and to like, you know, negotiate these new laws and things like that? So that's what I'm looking at. And it's really a fascinating time period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that really leads really well. To the next chapter as well, Ishk in the times of Tinder. So you talk about women's desires, pleasures and body. And in the current time, especially the heartbreaking, very like enraging and really like frustrating case that is going on, the marital rape case, which is still being debated in the court. We know that Indian women's desires are really regularly penalized because of how it's connected with honor. So how does one really decouple pleasure from honor and male desire in such a misogynistic society? I think that's a very complicated question, right? And it's something that we should all think about. And for me, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read about marital rape in the, in the case in the court is Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me, you know, the book that she wrote and where she says, women are not reliable witnesses of their own lives. Truth is not their property now or ever. It's like they don't even trust us telling us about our own experiences and our own lives. That's how the patriarchy works, right? It doesn't trust women to tell their own stories and to like sort of create our own narratives. It wants to control everything about women's bodies and women's lives. And I think it's so important to amend the laws and change the laws. And it's amazing that all these women and men are fighting to change these laws in the courts and kudos to them. And I hope it changes, right, in the near future. But looking at, you know, how society has to change as well. In a lot of cases in India, we have the good laws. But society still doesn't even, that nothing's changed on the ground. 
So that change needs to happen. And I think movements like Me Too, for instance, was great for that because everybody started talking about consent. Everybody started talking about men were petrified, you know, and now they started thinking we need to be a little more careful about like how we go about our lives. And that's so important. And women sort of control their own narrative. And that's the most important thing to me that they spoke their side of the story and they took control of the narrative. And most of those women, I think they came out of survivors, right? The whole narrative was as I'm a survivor of this and I'm going to talk about this, right? And that's a powerful position. That's a powerful statement to make. And that itself, people do not like. One of the reasons that people do not like Me Too was that these women are talking about it like this. They're not even like showing the shame and the sort of victimhood. Like, you know, that's what they expect you to. And the fact that these women did not do that, that was a big... So this has brought about all these things to the surface now, that we're talking about all these things in India. And that is really a great thing. And I think that's only going to make things better and better. And women are so vocal these days. And it's not that everybody has to be on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. They're all doing it in their personal lives as well. They're talking about these things. They all, I think, to a large extent, women do know these things. And that's the narrative even in the West. Like I constantly see this idea of the third world woman. They just assume the third world woman is a victim. And that I cannot agree with because I know that Indian women are fierce spirits and they're all fighting. And it's just to see us as victims collectively is just anyway but that's another subject but I think society has to change with sex education we need to talk about pleasure as well which I speak about a lot in the book because we need to know what pleasure means to know what is not good right if you don't even know what pleasure is like how do you differentiate between like anything that's good or not not good for you so you need to know understand whether your body even likes this like whether you like it like you need to explore our sexualities like a lot of women like asexuality you know it's not even something that's spoken about in our society right and so many women experience such horrible things to even come to that realization because we don't even know that something that we have to explore and understand about our bodies so it is so important I think to talk about sexuality sex pleasure and all of that yeah yeah I think I had not thought about the power of me too in the way that you framed it about how it was basically women coming out and not feeling any victimhood or shame around their narratives. And that's, that is very powerful. And I think that is one of the reasons why there was a change, right? That is one of the reasons why people absolutely, like men were terrified <laughs> because they were like, oh, they're not even asking, like they're not even like feeling, you know, not even asking to be saved or anything. Tomorrow they'll just blame us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah, a great they just thing. want to save it's like oh help me like in all those movies you have like you know help me help me and the hero comes and saves so there's no hero we're not asking for a hero here so yeah. that's the problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and in the same chapter I was also intrigued by how you also talk about caste and queer intersections as you mentioned as well like especially with decriminalization of section 377 and with the promise of like apps and dating apps and how they will you know break the barriers and make like give women choices of whom to love and it'll like be a liberation so what do you think about that as well what do you think about like these dynamics in modern dating so I was thinking about this you know obviously in the book has a lot of experiences of different women from different intersections of society so that's there and then to talk about it from my own intersection my own you know positionality as in I'm an intercaste woman and I have Dalit ancestry so in every relationship that's failed not just with men unfortunately with women too like I've always thought is it because of my Dalit blood like you know because society is so casteist right like you cannot not think that that's how Indian society works so caste plays such an important part like we 
saw in Indian matchmaking, all that that came out of how, you know, and it's just even in the dating world, we know whether it's online or offline, we bring our prejudices with us. And it's one of the things like you might not like somebody who's into R&B or like you won't like somebody who likes rock music. You also don't like somebody who belongs to another caste. That's how India is. It's like everybody is caste. It's just impossible to escape caste. And they just bring it to all the platforms. So whether it's an online platform or offline, doesn't matter. They just still caste is, right? And it is also the thing with dating is one thing. And then you come to marriage, right? And you see that in India, most marriages are endogamous marriages. So you understand that whether even if you had, even if these people had relationships with people from other castes or, you know, communities or whatever, when it comes to marriage, people always fall back to their caste location and marry within that caste. And that's how caste gets perpetuated anyway, right? So as long as you're marrying within the caste, it's just going to keep, you know, and this is not to say that people in those marriages have horrible marriages. It might be the best marriage ever. Nobody's arguing against that, but that's what caste is. That's how caste gets perpetuated. So yeah, it's like sometimes I feel modern dating is not like so modern in India anyway, right? The other end of the spectrum is that you fall in love and you get married to the love of your life or whatever. That marriage does not mean it's a gender equal marriage. It could still be a very patriarchal setup there, you know, and you don't even have family support sometimes in those cases because you've gone against your family to marry. And and these are all the realities of India. So that's one thing. And when you look at queer dating, so I'm 35 now. So when I was, you know, in my teenage years, there were no apps and stuff like that. So I've not experienced all the Gen Z sort of uh, stuff that's going on now. That's another world. You should ask one of them. But from what I have experienced and when I was a teenager, it was 377 was still there. So it was already like a thing that you people would tell you things like you couldn't get arrested for being the way you are and things like that and scare you and all of that, right? And to just still be who you want to be despite all these threats is itself a very difficult thing to do, which I did. And I did not let them scare me into being somebody I was not. I would be who I am, right? So yeah, it is a, it's a difficult in India to be a queer person. And the funny thing is, for me, all the research that I'm doing right now is to find that in fact, in pre-colonial India was pretty queer inclusive. I'm like, how did you guys forget your own you know history and just because of this colonial period like because of that we are still colonized in our minds so there are amazing books like Ruth Vanita's Queering India or like Madhvi Menon's Desire you read those books and you see how these are such diverse beautiful ideas in India right and the thing is obviously the far right supports that I'm like I thought you guys wanted to sort of decolonize you know what's going on it's just everybody is colonized at the end of the day now. So yeah, there is a, there is a lot to do in that space and to like, you know, and that will happen only when people come out and talk about their experiences. And a lot of people say this in the queer community that we're not really a minority. I think if we all come out and spoke in India, like, you know, there is actually so many of us, but we're just not speaking about it, right? So I think that will change slowly as as more of these narratives come out and people understand that it's normal, (laughs) you know? So it's in fact abnormal to force everyone to be heterosexual. It's just not the at all the case. So with respect to dating apps, yeah, like I said, there is so much out there, people writing first person narratives about it, but I have no personal experience of that. So can't tell you much. I also hope for a better future, but I have hope though, because like now, at least on digital platforms and everything, queerness has become a lot more normalized in India, I guess. And like a lot of people are coming out, maybe not to their families, but there is a lot of community. So that is absolutely a lot of hope. (laughs) I think in the next chapter, you talk about the network, 
we already spoke a little about it but can you tell us a little bit more about basically your major argument is about embracing femininity at the workplace as well and as you were mentioning earlier embracing masculinity especially in the workplace is seen as desirable because you're supposed to be authoritative you're supposed to be all those kind of things that you associate with being a man so that you can like the boss lady narrative so can you talk a little bit more about you know how embracing femininity at the workplace and how to also negotiate your power yeah this was you know very like a learning thing for me writing this chapter because speaking to these different women and about their experiences it really sort of changed a lot of ideas that i had about what the workplace it is so complicated for the woman to navigate this workplace right because i spoke to women leaders and they all had similar things to say about this holding what femininity masculinity sort of a thing where obviously they are meant to be authoritative and they have to prove constantly that as women they are capable of being in that position of power so for which they have to prove that oh i'm not feminine i'm not like the gendered woman that you think i am i'm this neutral you know like this this person who can do this job they have to prove that but at the same time people at the workplace because she is a woman they expect her to also be a little softer than the men a little nicer and when she is not then obviously we know what they call her at the workplace so there are these conflicting expectations of women at the workplace so they're expected to be this and they're expected to be that too so whatever she chooses to be, she's still not, you know, the best person for the job, because then they're thinking, whatever, they're just gossiping about her anyway. So apart from all of that, there is this problem. And there is, although I'm asking women to sort of take on feminine roles inside organizations, I don't mean the feminine roles that the patriarchy thinks is the feminine role. It is important to expand what that means, because according to patriarchal organizations, feminine roles are go present this to the clients, you know, or just do these sort of jobs where you just have to smile and be nice. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking the power at the workplace but subverting what it means to be feminine at the workplace. So show empathy, be collaborative, do all of that, but obviously also be authoritative and take the power, right? So it's, it's a constant negotiation. And that's what I've realized with all the women that I've spoken to in various positions inside various organizations, that they have to constantly negotiate. There is no one day that they can just relax and say, I'm just going to do my work and just, you know, whatever. It's not so easy. They have to negotiate with people. They have to negotiate with what work they get and all of that. And then obviously, if they are married women with children or unmarried women with children, it just makes life even harder because if she's a married woman with a child she has her family as in the extended family in the Indian context plus her child and if she's an unmarried woman with a child obviously all the sort of social taboo that comes with it and obviously the child care so the child care brings a lot of you know so if the woman takes off from work to do uh, the child care work then she would not be given promotions and then that would be work against her but if she came to work leaving her children all the time then people would think oh my god she's neglecting her children at the workplace would be talking about that right so there is no win-win situation for a woman so I just in the book I argue that women should just do what they feel is right and not care about what anybody thinks because there's no way they can like make everybody happy so just do what you feel is right trust your own intuitions I think intuition is another thing that I mean by be feminine in the workplace is to trust intuition because the patriarchy is constantly telling us don't be this intuitive thing of women is not a great thing or for men but so many research papers now within corporations prove that, oh, these, these sort of intuitive decisions, that's considered like an emotional EQ, emotional question. It's supposed to be so important these days. And I'm like, okay, women have had this all the time. 
you know, and you've been telling them not to use it. And now that you think that it's important, oh, now we can use it. What is that? Like, you know, so that's what I mean by embrace your femininity at the workplace. It's not to say wear red lipstick, but yes, do that too, if you do like that, you know. And that's another thing that I speak about in the book about post-feminist women who like to come to work as who they really are, if they, if they like to be sexy women. They don't want to come to work and say, oh, I'm not going to be this person now. I have to be all proper according to whatever. They can be sexy women at work and be talented too. I mean, there is no rule against that, right? And it's the same thing. So if a woman dresses up in a sexy way, she'll be judged. If she dresses up with no fashion, if she's going to be all like, I'm just going to do my work, I don't care how I look, then again, she's judged. There is no escaping the judgment. It's just so I think each woman should just embrace whoever she is, you know, or whoever they are. So there is no rule against any of that. And just one more thing I wanted to say about working women. I think you must have seen in the book, I include homemakers and housewives in this chapter, because I think Indian women at home do so much work. And it's just not even like recognized by our society, right? And it's so misogynistic, the way we talk about housewives, like painted and dented women, or like, you know, they just watch their cereals all day, like it mocks them, okay? But at the same time, it wants them to be that, I don't even know what's going on anymore. So it's like, what do you want these women to be, you know? And it's just, that is the reality of India. And so for me, I wanted to include those women, and it's not just for India, in fact, it's all over the world, I think, to, to include homemakers and housewives in this chapter because they contribute a lot to our economy. And if we actually sort of calculated how much care work that they did and all and we paid for it, that's billions and billions of dollars, right? So it's just that we don't value feminine work. We don't value women. And that needs to change. So that's what I try to do in the chapter. And I also look at, you know, although the chapter mainly focuses on urban women, I did interview some rural-based women as well. I interviewed the first Adivasi Sarpanch of a place in Gujarat. What was fascinating to me was she told me, I was asking her about like Narivad, like feminism and all of that, right? And then I asked her, so is your society like, is it like very patriarchal and all of that? She's like, no, you know, in fact, the men in my family put me up for this job. And she's like, the men listen to me. It's not like they are the impediments to my life. The problem that I face is all from the government because they don't do everything we needed. So it's like, even what patriarchy means for each one of us is so different and where we face those problems, right? So I have this problem with like just saying feminism is just this one thing and we should all sort of agree to that. It doesn't make sense. So yeah, that's the chapter. Yeah, I really like how you've described feminism as a very subjective kind of experience. And I totally agree. Everybody experiences patriarchy in very different ways. And yeah, when I was reading about like the homemaker stuff, I recently had a very uh, lasting conversation with like my family because like a lot of, the wife jokes are really rampant in a lot of like Indian households. I don't understand it. It's not even ironical because it is something that you're getting free labor from your wife and then you're making fun of it. So it's crazy. And like, yeah, so like a lot of my older cousins or uncles were like recently married. They crack these jokes and it's really infuriating. And it, at the moment, because it has become such a part of the culture, even women laugh at it. So it's like, it's not, as you said, it's not a man-women kind of problem. It's, it's a basic underscore of the patriarchy, which is just everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think women indulge in that a lot more too, right? Like there are all these sort of women who control other women's lives within these. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not even just the men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sadly. 
you were talking about post feminism and as a term it has like conflicting connotations and you also mentioned that in the anglo american circles it has negative connotations but you dispute this outlook in the book so can you tell us a little bit more about your lens of post feminism yeah like you rightly said and i mentioned in the book in the west it has a very negative connotation because it's largely seen to be like the sex in the city sort of feminism right so that's post feminism because it's always considered in the, it's more popular in the sort of media and media studies so that's the way the term is used the way that i use the term in the book though is to say that it's beyond it's very subjective so that's the post so it's more to do with like post structuralism post modernism all these concepts which talk about any theory in the world cannot claim to be objective it cannot claim to be this is the one theory because we're post all that we are in a place now to say that subjectivity matters all of us have our different subjectivities but how do we form allyship even though we are all different right so that's where we need to come to and that's what the book argues and it's also critiques a lot of feminism because you cannot institutionalize feminism you cannot say this is feminism and everybody who's against this we're going to you know i think feminists unfortunately spend a lot of time talking about who is not a feminist and i think i don't really know how that helps really because i mean we all need to find some allyship with each other to fight the patriarchy to smash it and if you're going to spend all our time all our precious time if i may say so because we're not paid for half our labor if we're going to spend that time in bashing each other and stabbing each other on the back or in the front i don't know how we're going to find any allyship right and that was what i wanted to stress and that's why i call it post feminism because if you just say feminism it has a very sort of marxist or leftist or liberal connotation and i while i obviously am a product of that sort of thinking myself i critique a lot of that and that is the whole point of being you know a progressive anyway that you have to critique constantly to find a new sort of a reality for the new reality or for the contemporary sort of situation so i i don't necessarily spend time in the book saying i agree with this i agree obviously whatever i agree with i agree with i'm just talking about the stuff that i disagree with because those are the places where there is scope for change and they must be change especially today in india not just india i think all over the world we have such polarization between the left and the right especially and what that is right and what really really bugs me is that for the women from the left although left side of the divide i'm not saying far left or whatever so when they see men who have similar ideologies attack women from the right in very misogynistic language they have nothing to say about it and that to me is hypocritical you know a woman is a woman whether whatever her ideological beliefs are and the sort of misogyny that i see today like in twitter i see so many women who have say you know whatever from the right as well obviously they do the same thing to the women of the left so i'm just saying that both ways we're just attacking women and we're all okay with it and i'm like where is feminism in all of this like what does that even mean anymore right so to say that feminism is an umbrella term which is for this 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 but it's not so flexible really it is sort of excludes more people than it's including and that for me is a problem because the whole point is to be inclusive and include more of us and to sort of change these things and it's not to say that i agree with any of these people from the right or the left in when all of this happens but yeah that's where i'm coming from and that's what my post feminism is about to say that we have to move beyond all these definitions to find allyship with each other i totally get your point i hope that future comes along so when we're talking about the future feminism <laughs> the thought that comes to my mind when you're talking about polarization and as well as women just being stacked up against each other is like we can't ignore the conversation which is raging everywhere about like what constitutes womanhood 
and in a world where gender binary is basically we are questioning it we are breaking out of it what do you think smashing the patriarchy will look like in the future so for me when it comes to the idea of womanhood i am against the idea of sort of you know erasing the idea of a woman because i think our foremothers have lived as women i'm a woman i identify as a woman i want to expand what it means to be a woman so trans women are women if they want to be so that's that's my idea of what it means to be a woman and if you do not want to be a woman you want to be non binary you want to be a man that should be okay too and i think that's what smashing the patriarchy for me means a queer world where we can all be live to our true potentials and live to be ourselves just explore our bodies our sexualities what we want to do all of that so that to me is where we have smashed the patriarchy and i think if that is established anyway all these other problems would go away because it's the hypermasculinity that's the problem and once men who are hypermasculine are not the only ones controlling all of this when we all become participants in this world where we all you know take on different roles i think that would change everything so my major problem is against this hypermasculine way of looking at the world and how that controls how all the rest of us should live and the sort of hypermasculine those people are like not so it's not even a majority it's like they cannot decide how the rest of us live so i think smashing the patriarchy is all about that and it's not easy to do because it's so complicated on so many levels and each patriarchy is different and women enjoy in fact privileges within the patriarchy too so when you have privileges how are you going to break that system you know so that's the complicated question to ask and are you going to be inclusive like are you just going to benefit from it individually only or are you going to do something so those are the questions that we have to ask and what it means but yeah i think it's an ongoing conversation it's not like this is one way to smash the patriarchy i just wanted to through this book sort of ask these questions make people think about different things and i'm not saying this is the solution this is the book like please read this book if you want to be a feminist or you want to smash that's not what i'm trying to say this is a guide it's called a guide for that reason yeah it has been a really interesting and fun conversation last question recommendations but if you have any like lasting comments about the conversation or about the book please go ahead no i think it's been great talking to you too because i love talking to somebody who understands and resonates you know <laughs> with a lot of this stuff so you see what's going on you were talking about like those groups where they have these jokes about women and stuff like that that's the reality here right and it's so normalized yeah. the main thing is to sort of do away this normalization this is not the norm this is not normal so you know and yeah. that's what it is about I had a lovely conversation with you and this was great for your book recommendations i did write down some books and the thing is that i don't even agree with everything that's there in all of these books but they're great to like have start your conversation with yourself about what it means to be a feminist or what it means to smash yeah. the patriarchy so seeing like a feminist nivedita menon i think everybody has read it good book to read and uh, men explain things to me rebecca solnit again a great book and all of bell hooks gloria anzaldua who again i love gloria anzaldua writes about queerness and about you know sort of decolonizing and i think her work is brilliant because she mixes up different genres the way she writes a room of one's own virginia wolf for me i think although it's so old now it still speaks to so many realities and what virginia wolf says and i don't know which book she wrote it in but she says that the patriarchy of men expect women to be like mirrors of their own egos so they want us to amplify their egos so that's the problem right women cannot bring their own egos into play we have to either be selfless to be the best woman or like not exist at all so we cannot bring our own egos into the thing and virginia wolf goes into that 
And the last one is Second Sex by Simone Dubois. I think, again, I don't agree with everything she says, but it's a great book. It'll be a good starting point to think our own ideas. Yeah, thank you so much. 